Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The sensation of her warm body in his embrace, the feeling of her smooth round arm through the thinness of her sleeve, pressing against his cheek, thrilled Annixter with a delight such as he had never known. He bent his head and kissed her upon the nape of her neck, where the delicate amber tint melted into the thick, sweet-smelling mass of her dark brown hair. She shivered a little, holding him closer, ashamed as yet to look up. Without speech they stood there for a long minute, holding each other close. Then Hilma pulled away from him, mopping her tear-stained cheeks with the little moist ball of her handkerchief. "'What do you say? Is it a go?' demanded Annixter jovially. "'I thought I hated you all the time,' she said, and the velvety huskiness of her voice never sounded so sweet to him. "'And I thought it was that crockery-smashing goat of a lout of a cow-puncher.' "'Delaney! The idea! Oh, dear! I think it must always have been you.' "'Since when, Hilma?' he asked, putting his arm around her. "'Ah, but it is good to have you, my girl,' he exclaimed, delighted beyond words that she permitted this freedom. "'Since when? Tell us all about it.' "'Oh, since always. It was ever so long before I came to think of you to, well, to think about. I, I mean to remember. Oh, you know what I mean. But then I did. Oh, then—' Then what? I don't know. I haven't thought that way long enough to to know. But you said you thought it must have been me always. I know, but that was different. Oh, I'm all mixed up. I'm so nervous and trembly now. Oh, she cried suddenly, her face overcast with a look of earnestness and great seriousness, both her hands catching at his wrist. Oh, you will be good to me now, won't you? I'm only a little, little child in so many ways, and I've given myself to you all in a minute, and I, I can't go back on it now, and it's for always. I don't know how it happened or why. Sometimes I think I didn't wish it, but now it's done, and I am glad and happy. But, but now, if you weren't good to me, oh, oh, think of how it would be with me. You are strong and big and rich, and I am only a servant of yours, a, a little nobody, but I've given all I had to you, myself, and you must be so good to me now. Always remember that. Be good to me, and be gentle and kind to me in little things, in everything, or you will break my heart. Annixter took her in his arms. He was speechless. No words that he had at his command seemed adequate. All he could say was, That's all right, little girl. Don't you be frightened. I'll take care of you. That's all, That's all right. That's all right. For a long time they sat there under the shade of the great trestle, their arms about each other, speaking only at intervals. An hour passed. The buckskin, finding no feed to her taste, took the trail stablewards, the bridle dragging. Annixter let her go. Rather than to take his arm from around Hilma's waist, he would have lost his whole stable. 
At last, however, he bestirred himself and began to talk. He thought it time to formulate some plan of action. Well, now, Helma, what are we going to do? Do? she repeated. Why must we do anything? Isn't this enough? Ah, there's better ahead, he went on. I want to fix you up somewhere where you can have a bit of a home all to yourself. Uh, let's see. Bonneville wouldn't do. There's always a lot of yaps about there that know us, and they would begin to cackle first off. How about San Francisco? We might go up uh, next week and have a look around. I could find rooms you could take somewheres, and we could fix them up as lovely as how do you do? Oh, but why go away from Quien Sabe? she protested. And then so soon, too. Why must we have a wedding trip now that you are so busy? Wouldn't it be better? Oh, I tell you, we could go to Monterey after we were married for a little week where Mama's people live, and then come back here to the ranch house and settle right down here where we are, and let me keep house for you. I wouldn't even want a single servant. Annixter heard, and his face grew troubled. Mm, he said. I see. He gathered up a handful of pebbles and began snapping them carefully into the creek. He fell thoughtful. Here was a phase of the affair he had not planned in the least. He had supposed all the time that Hilma took his meaning. His old suspicion that she was trying to get a hold on him stirred again for a moment. There was no good of such talk as that. Always these female girls seemed crazy to get married, bent on complicating the situation. Isn't that best? said Hilma, glancing at him. Uh, I don't know, he muttered gloomily. Well, then, let's not. Let's come right back to Quien Sabe without going to Monterey. Anything that you want, I want. I hadn't thought of it in just that way, he observed. In what way, then? Oh, can't we, uh, can't we, uh, wait about this, uh, marrying business? Well, that's just it, she said gaily. I said it was too soon. There would be too much to do between whiles. Why not say at the end of summer? Say what? Our marriage, I mean. Why get married, then? What's the good of all that fuss about it? I don't go anything upon a minister puddling around in my affairs. Well, what's the difference, anyhow? We understand each other. Isn't that enough? Huff, Hilma, I'm no marrying man. She looked at him for a moment, bewildered. Then slowly she took his meaning. She rose to her feet, her eyes wide, her face paling with terror. He did not look at her but he could hear the catch in her throat. Oh, she exclaimed with a long, deep breath, and again, oh, the back of her hand against her lips. It was a quick gasp of a veritable physical anguish. Her eyes brimmed over. Annixter rose, looking at her. Well, he said awkwardly, well, Hilma leaped back from him with an instinctive recoil of her whole being, throwing out her hands in a gesture of defense, fearing she knew not what. There was as yet no sense of insult in her mind, no outraged modesty. She was only terrified. It was as though searching for wildflowers she had come suddenly upon a snake. She stood for an instant spellbound, her eyes wide, her bosom swelling. 
then all at once turned and fled, darting across the plank that served for a footbridge over the creek, gaining the opposite bank and disappearing with a brisk rustle of underbrush such as might have been made by the flight of a frightened fawn. Abruptly Annixter found himself alone. For a moment he did not move. Then he picked up his campaign hat, carefully creased its limp crown, and put it on his head, and stood for a moment, looking vaguely at the ground on both sides of him. He went away without uttering a word, without change of countenance, his hands in his pockets, his feet taking great strides along the trail in the direction of the ranch house. He had no sight of Hilma again that evening, and the next morning he was up early and did not breakfast at the ranch house. Business of the League called him to Bonneville to confer with Magnus and the firm of lawyers retained by the League to fight the land-grabbing cases. An appeal was to be taken to the Supreme Court at Washington, and it was to be settled that day which of the cases involved should be considered as test cases. Instead of driving or riding into Bonneville, as he usually did, Annixter took an early morning train, the Bakersfield Fresno local at Guadalajara, and went to Bonneville by rail, arriving there at twenty minutes after seven, and breakfasting by appointment with Magnus Derrick and Osterman at the Yosemite House on Main Street. The conference of the committee with the lawyers took place in a front room of the Yosemite, one of the latter bringing with him his clerk, who made a stenographic report of the proceedings and took carbon copies of all letters written. The conference was long and complicated, the business transacted of the utmost moment, and it was not until two o'clock that Annixter found himself at liberty. However, as he and Magnus descended into the lobby of the hotel, they were aware of an excited and interested group collected about the swing doors that opened from the lobby of the Yosemite into the bar of the same name. Dyke was there. Even at a distance they could hear the reverberation of his deep-toned voice, uplifted in wrath and furious expostulation. Magnus and Annixter joined the group, wondering, and all at once fell full upon the full scene of a drama. That same morning Dyke's mother had awakened him, according to his instructions, at daybreak. A consignment of his hop-pulls from the north had arrived at the freight office of the P&SW in Bonneville, and he was to drive in on his farm wagon and bring them out. He would have a busy day. "'Hello, hello,' he said, as his mother pulled his ear to arouse him. "'Morning, Mama.' "'It's time,' she said. "'After five already your breakfast is on the stove.' He took her hand and kissed it with great affection. He loved his mother devotedly, quite as much as he did the little tad. In their little cottage, in the forest of green hops that surrounded them on every hand, the three led a joyous and secluded life, contented, industrious, happy, asking nothing better. Dyke himself was a big-hearted, jovial man who spread an atmosphere of good humor wherever he went. In the evenings he played with Sidney like a big boy, an older brother lying on the bed or the sofa taking her in his arms. Between them they had invented a great game— the ex-engineer, his boots removed, his huge legs in the air, hoisted the little tad on the soles of his stockinged feet like a circus acrobat, dandling her there, pretending he was about to let her fall. 
Sidney, choking with delight, held on nervously with little screams and chirps of excitement, while he shifted her gingerly from one foot to another, and thence the final act, the great gallery play, to the palm of one great hand. At this point Mrs. Dyke was called in, both father and daughter, children both, crying out that she was to come in and look, look. She arrived out of breath from the kitchen, the potato masher in her hand. Such children, she murmured, shaking her head at them, amused for all that, tucking the potato masher under her arm and clapping her hands. In the end, it was part of the game that Sidney should tumble down upon Dyke, whereat he invariably vented a great bellow as if in pain, declaring that his ribs were broken. Gasping, his eyes shut, he pretended to be in the extreme of dissolution. Perhaps he was dying. Sidney, always a little uncertain, amused, but distressed, shook him nervously, tugging at his beard, pushing open his eyelid with one finger, imploring him not to frighten her, to wake up and be good. On this occasion, while yet he was half-dressed, Dyke tiptoed into his mother's room to look at Sidney fast asleep in her little iron cot, her arm under her head, her lips parted. With infinite precaution he kissed her twice and then, finding one little stocking, hung with its mate very neatly over the back of a chair, dropped into it a dime, rolled up in a wad of paper. He winked all to himself and went out again, closing the door with exaggerated carefulness. He breakfasted alone, Mrs. Dyke pouring his coffee and handing him his plate of ham and eggs, and half an hour later took himself off in his springless, skeleton wagon humming a tune behind his beard, and cracking the whip over the backs of his staid and solid farm horses. The morning was fine, the sun just coming up. He left Guadalajara, sleeping and lifeless, on his left, and going across lots over an angle of Quien Sabe, came out upon the upper road, a mile below the long trestle. He was in great spirits, looking about him over the brown fields, ruddy with the dawn, Almost directly in front of him, but far off, the gilded dome of the courthouse at Bonneville was glinting radiant in the first rays of the sun, while a few miles distant toward the north the venerable Campanile of the Mission San Juan stood silhouetted in purplish-black against the flaming east. As he proceeded, the great farm horses jogging forward, placid, deliberate, the countryside waked to another day. Crossing the irrigating ditch further on, he met a gang of Portuguese, with picks and shovels over their shoulders, just going to work. Hooven, already abroad, shouted him a good morning from behind the fence of Los Muertos, far off toward the southwest in the bare expanse of the open fields, where a clump of eucalyptus and cypress trees set a dark green note, a thin stream of smoke rose straight into the air from the kitchen of Derrick's ranch houses. But a mile or so beyond the long trestle he was surprised to see Magnus Derrick's protégé, the one-time shepherd, Vanamee, coming across Quien Sabe by a trail from one of Annixter's division houses. Without knowing exactly why, Dyke received the impression that the young man had not been in bed all of that night. As the two approached each other, Dyke eyed the young fellow. 
He was distrustful of Vanamee, having the country-bred suspicion of any person he could not understand. Vanamee was, beyond doubt, no part of the life of ranch and country town. He was an alien, a vagabond, a strange fellow, who came and went in mysterious fashion, making no friends, keeping to himself. Why did he never wear a hat? Why indulge in a fine, black-pointed beard, when neither a round beard or a moustache was the invariable custom? Why did he not cut his hair? Above all, why did he prowl about so much at night? As the two passed each other, Dyke, for all his good nature, was a little blunt in his greeting, and looked back at the ex-shepherd over his shoulder. Dyke was right in his suspicion. Vanamee's bed had not been disturbed for three nights. On the Monday of that week he had passed the entire night in the garden of the mission, overlooking the seed ranch in the little valley. Tuesday evening had found him miles away from that spot, in a deep arroyo in the Sierra foothills to the eastward, while Wednesday he had slept in an abandoned dobe on Osterman's stock range, twenty miles from his resting place of the night before. The fact of the matter was that the old restlessness had once more seized upon Vanamee. Something began tugging at him. The spur of some unseen rider touched his flank. The instinct of the wanderer woke and moved. For some time now he had been a part of the Los Muertos staff. On Quien Sabe, as on the other ranches, the slack season was at hand. While waiting for the wheat to come up, no one was doing much of anything. Vanamee had come over to Los Muertos and spent most of his days on horseback, riding the range, rounding up and watching the cattle in the fourth division of the ranch. But if the vagabond instinct now roused itself in the strange fellow's nature, a counter-influence had also set in. More and more Vanamee frequented the Mission Garden after nightfall, sometimes remaining there till the dawn began to whiten, lying prone on the ground his chin on his folded arms, his eyes searching the darkness over the little valley of the seed ranch, watching, watching. As the days went by, he became more reticent than ever. Presley often came to find him on the stock range, a lonely figure in the great wilderness of bare, green hillsides. But Vanamee no longer took him into his confidence. Father Saria alone heard his strange stories. Dyke drove on toward Bonneville, thinking over the whole matter. He knew, as everyone did in that part of the country, the legend of Vanamee and Angele, the romance of the Mission Garden, the mystery of the Other, Vanamee's flight to the deserts of the southwest, his periodic returns, his strange, reticent, solitary character, but, like many another of the country people, he accounted for Vanamee by a short and easy method. No doubt the fellow's wits were turned. That was the long and short of it. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two